Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-368 of the new summer, the new summer of the Run Run Live podcast. Happy 4th of July to all my patriotic American friends. Today, we have a chat with Julia, who has a great story. She had that moment in her life where she lost everything, and that led her to the endurance sports epiphany. Yep, we get so many of these stories, and it makes me wonder why people seem to need to get knocked up the side of the head to make big changes in their lives. Maybe it's just that we need to be shown that anything is possible. We need to be broken out of our frame of reference. I'm dropping this show on June 30th. I am finishing up my 30-day 5 at 5 project where I simply got up and ran five miles at 5 a.m. every morning in the woods. And I will include my report on that project in Section 2. So, how are you doing? If you're an ultramarathoner, you're in the thick of your summer racing season. Likewise, if you're a triathlete or a biker, you may be racing or training for a late summer race. If you're one of those crazy marathon runners, you probably need to get started. Start getting serious about your training for that fall race. Such is the cycle of our lives. And I do love this time of year. I know many of you in Europe and in the great sun-beaten swaths of the western U.S. and the densely humid jungles of the southern U.S. have been having some hot, hot, hot weather. But... I, up here in New England, have had a mild start to summer. We've had lots of rain, cooler temps, the plants are happy, and the little animals are all thriving. Buddy the Old Wonder Dog ran my 5 at 5 project with me. Yeah, I took him out for a first loop and then went out again by myself to get my extra miles in. And that seemed to be a good fit for him. He loves the cooler weather. So how are your gardens doing? Mine was slow to get started due to the cool entrance of summer, but now my tomatoes, or tomatoes, depending on where you're from, my squash, my cucumbers are coming on, but my beans didn't come up. I think it was because I was using, like, five-year-old seeds. (laughs) So no surprise, really. 
And my berries. My berries are starting to come in. Going to have a boatload of berries. And like I told you before, I've got a bevy of apples on my trees. So might get some apples this year. So how about you? How's your running? How's your swimming? How's your biking? How's your gardening? What's your next big race? Huh? So I watched a couple new movies since we last talked. The first one was John Wick 2, which I thought would be, frankly, I thought it would be stupid. (laughs) Just another terrible action movie. I had low expectations, but it was good. You know, for an action movie, it was good. They could have just mailed it in and done the typical guy with the guns and cars, Van Damme, Schwarzenegger, Stallone movie thing. But they did a little bit more. They did, they put in this noir affectation that made the character less cartoonish and more interesting, more likable. And they did this thing with the fight scenes that included a lot of judo, which was interesting. So not like the wire fighting in The Matrix or, you know, the karate in a Bruce Lee type movie, but more like Olympic judo or wrestling type moves. Very interesting. And of course, lots of car crashes, explosions, and a very high body count for the bad guys. And the other movie I watched was Trumbo. And this came out a couple years ago. This is a sort of biopic with Brian Cranston of Breaking Bad fame playing Dalton Trumbo. And I'll watch it with Teresa, uh, which I'm probably insufferable to watch a historical movie with. (laughs) I'll give you a quick plot summary or a quick historical uh, summary here. Trumbo was one of the most famous, richest screenwriters in Hollywood in 1947. But he also was a member of the Communist Party, which wasn't necessarily a bad thing in 1944 when we were friends with Stalin. But it turned out to be a very bad thing in 1947 with the beginning of the Cold War and a new Red Scare. So some wankers in Congress decided that Hollywood was being run by communists and they were all fifth columnists set on infecting the population with their commie ideas and they proceeded to create this extra-legal body called the House Un-American Activities Committee with subpoena power to weed out the commies in Hollywood. Now, technically, the Constitution says we can believe in anything we want and the government can go suck it. But in times of hysteria, power-hungry politicians always find some boogeyman to whip up that allows them to set aside most of the rules. So this committee subpoenaed 10, mostly screenwriters, who became known as the Hollywood Ten. They were going to question these guys. And these guys, thinking they had rights, decided not to answer the questions. And times being what they were, they went to jail for a couple years for contempt or obstruction or something else. And Trumbo was one of these guys, the Hollywood 10. Meanwhile, at the start of this, Hollywood didn't think it was a big deal. All the stars banded together and tried to turn the tide and tell middle America how ridiculous all this witch hunting was. And they totally overestimated their star power and they totally overreached and they totally misread the sentiment of working class Americans. Joe Sixpack didn't have any love for these lefty pinko coastal elites and wanted the commies weeded out. So thus started the blacklist. The studio heads were basically arm twisted into committing 
not to employ anyone who was on the blacklist. And this wasn't a published list. It was just a backroom sort of deal. And the blacklist did what it was intended to do and put people out of work and even ruined or ended their lives. So there's a great series that goes through this in detail that I would highly recommend you listen to before watching Trumbo so you get the context. It's on the You Must Remember This podcast by Karina Longworth, and she did a whole season on the blacklist that was really good. So I won't belabor the politics in Trumbo. Sometimes when you look back on the blacklist, people are incredulous that this actually happened. Yeah, it did. So these guys were actually communists, right? But mostly armchair communists, not Stalinists. I mean, there was a fair amount of anti-Semitism whipped up in all this as well. It was a little bit of an ugly period of time in American history. So it's a good movie, and knowing the history of the era makes it a better movie. Cranston is great. And the thing I really took away from it, the positive thing, more than the political parallels, was just how Trumbo kept working. They took his job, they made him persona non grata, but he just kept writing. He did what he was good at, and eventually Hollywood came back around. He won two Oscars for screenplays that were attributed to other writers, in one case, a made-up name. And that's the lesson here for me. Just, Just keep your fire burning, keep using your gift, keep doing what you're good at, and the rest really doesn't matter, does it? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Long run paces for marathon training. I'm going to hit this topic again because I keep getting asked this question and it seems there may be some misunderstanding around it. So typically the question is, How fast should I run my long run in my marathon training plan? And as we discussed before, the answer is it depends. First, the answer depends on what your goal is for your target marathon race. What are you trying to accomplish? And second, this can only only really be answered in context of your entire training plan. The long run is just one element of that plan, and it has to work with that plan. So let's look at that first thing. What's your goal? What are you trying to accomplish? Are you training to be able to just finish the distance? Many people training for a marathon are simply training or trying to make that last six to eight miles go better. I cannot tell you how many people have told me the same story. They trained for their last race. They were running well until mile 18, and the wheels fell off, and they struggled to finish. Their goal in this case is to be able to run through that last 8 to 10 miles and not crash. That's a worthy goal. And there are three main reasons they could be crashing at the end. First, and primary reason, is they aren't aerobically fit enough to maintain the effort over the time and distance. Second is that they went out too fast and they don't know how to pace. Third is that they screwed up their nutrition, their fluid, their electrolyte replenishment, and essentially ran out of fuel. Now to get more aerobically fit, 
to build the capacity to sustain an effort over the course of the race, you need to treat the long run as an aerobic fitness run. This means you have to slow it down and run it at a pace that is probably 1 to 130 slower than your race pace. And this messes with people's heads for some reason. They're trying to apply the logic that since the long run is simulating the race somehow, then you should try to do it at race pace or near race pace. They somehow think the long run is some sort of practice race. This is false logic. Your body builds more aerobic fitness at lower effort levels. Running your long runs fast not only doesn't build that physical capacity of aerobic base, it also breaks you down and makes you less able to execute the rest of your training plan. Now to stop going out too fast, you have to stop training to go out too fast. This means starting your long run at a slower pace and then having the discipline to hold that pace through the course of the long run. You're training your body not to fail at the end. If you try to run race pace in your long runs, you'll more than likely struggle to close them, and this is exactly what you are training not to do. If you're screwing up your nutrition, then the long run is a wonderful place to practice this as well. Again, going at an aerobic slow pace will allow you to test taking in different nutritions and different cadences and different volumes. And if you're if you're out there attacking your long run at race pace, you may not be able to digest and process that fuel as well as you should be. So to summarize, if your goal is to not crash at the end of the race, you need to keep your long runs aerobic, at least for the first two-thirds of the run. If it really bothers you and you can't hold yourself back, you can throw in two- to three-minute surges up to race pace and then close the last mile or so at race pace. And this will reinforce the practice of starting easy, pacing consistently, and and closing hard while practicing your nutrition at the same time. The pushback I get is, hey, if I want to finish stronger, why don't I just run the first third of my long run easy, the second third faster, and the third chunk at race pace or faster? And that's a perfectly good workout, but it's not a long run to build aerobic fitness. It's a step-up run to build tempo, to build race pace. And this type of workout addresses a different challenge and is appropriate if you already have an aerobic fitness, an aerobic base, and you want to fine-tune your racing ability. It's a tempo run. And these long step-up runs are typically found in more advanced plans for more experienced athletes. And a risk you run if you turn your long run into a tempo run is that you may be overloading your fitness capacity. If you're doing other hard workouts during the week, turning your weekend long run into a tempo run could hamper your ability to recover. If you go into these other hard workouts without enough recovery, you can get injured or not hit the workouts as well, which subsequently doesn't produce the benefits of those workouts. Got it? So the second goal that you could be training for, let's talk about this second type of goal you might have in your training for a marathon. You might have a time-based goal. You may be, God help you, trying to qualify for Boston. In this case, your constraint is not that you hit the wall at the end of the race per se. It's that you're not able to maintain a fast enough pace to meet your goal. So the bottom line is the goal of the training is to get faster. What does that mean for your long run? 
To get faster, you should do two things. First, you must develop the physical skills to run faster, the form, the muscles, the mechanics of speed. Second, you must move your aerobic threshold so that you can hold faster paces longer. Now, to develop the physical skills of running faster, you need to practice running faster. And this means speed and tempo training. This can be step-up runs, other tempo runs, track work like 800s and 1600s. This is the practice of speed. If you have never trained specifically for speed, you will reap large benefits from focusing on speed in your training plan. And how do you move your aerobic threshold so that you can maintain these paces for the distance? Well, it's one thing to be able to run 800 meters fast. It's quite another to hold that race pace for three hours. The fastest way to move this threshold and build capacity is with volume. There is an outsized benefit when you increase your volume from the typical amateur runner volume of 20 to 25 miles per week to a 40 to 50 miles a week. And these higher volumes will brute force condition your ability to hold that pace longer. And how do you get more volume? Well, one way is the weekly long run. If you're putting in 18 to 20 miles in a long run, that makes up a good chunk of that weekly volume that you need to move that aerobic barrier. So coming back around to shouldn't my long run be faster to practice for my race, you can see that the goal of the long run here is not to build pace or speed. It's simply to get volume. You're getting your pace and speed from the workouts during the week. You don't need to load in another tempo run on the weekends. The benefit comes from the time on your feet. As you progress through a training plan that has high volume and consistent speed and tempo, the two parts will start to come together. You'll be getting more efficient from the speed work and holding faster paces will be easier. And you'll be building more volume from the combination of the weekly workout cadence and the weekly long run that will give you that race fitness as well. So again, running the weekly long run as a tempo run in the context of one of these speed and tempo-based plans is probably overkill. The time on your feet is more important than pushing it hard. You're already doing that in the other training. And like we said before, you're going to end up pushing too hard and lessening the benefit of all your other workouts. So again, for advanced runners, in the last month leading into your race, it's okay to throw in some surges or some fast finishes or some step-up work. But don't turn your long run into a tempo run. It runs counter to your goals. The long run is for building volume and aerobic fitness, not for race-tuning your tempo pace. And now for today's featured interview. So, Julia, we are being recorded. I was watching a video of you earlier, and you and I ran a race together. In 2014, at least one. Oh, well, that one marathon. too. So we've run two together. So that means you were as dumb as me and you ran two marathons seven days apart. I do that all the time. Yeah, I was in both those races. Both wonderful races. They are. They're very nice. Yeah, that was my first New York. It was something. It's quite a machine. I think so, it's the uh, greatest show on earth. <laughs> it is. So you and I were introduced by a mutual friend who said I should talk to you. You are a marathoner and an ultra marathoner and 
many other licensed massage therapists and many other wonderful things, but your story is interesting as well because of how you got into this, right? So why don't you give us the 200 words or less on who you are and what you do and, and why we're chatting today. Thank you. While I was being treated at Memorial Sloan Kettery Cancer Center for a brain tumor in my 20s, I was lucky enough to witness the New York City Marathon. I didn't know what the marathon was. I didn't know how long or I didn't know anything that was involved. I was just sitting in my wheelchair getting my little cancer drip and I was watching. And while I was watching, I was inspired. I watched for hours, literally hours. And I saw fast people and slow people and people walking and people being happy. And I saw a blind runner with a tether attached to another runner. And I just saw all walks of life and I didn't know what it was, but I knew that everyone looked healthy. They looked so freaking healthy. And this is mile 16 on the course, so everyone was still happy. (laughs) Hmm. I decided then and there that if I ever got out of this cancer drip, I was going to do that. I dedicated my life to saying, okay, I'm going to do that one day and be that healthy and that strong. And that's how it was born. Yeah. So um, you had a uh, brain tumor, right? And they had to go in and take some of that out. And then you had to go through rehab and learn how to walk again and all that stuff, right? Yes. My tumor was in my motor skills. Unfortunately, after my surgery, the tumor was removed, but the focal point was in a part of the area that controls your motor skills. And so I was alive, but my body didn't operate the way I wanted it to. I would say in my brain, okay, get out of bed. But my muscles didn't respond the way they used to. So I spent a good year in rehab, making sure that I could relearn how to use my body again. All those synapses in your brain, they had to be reconnected. They had to refire in a way they haven't in a long time. Thank God for physical therapy and wonderful team of doctors. And somehow, because I had youth on my side, I was only 24 at the time, I decided, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to be living in this wheelchair. I'm going to work hard. And I spent hours writing the alphabet with my feet and picking up pencils and making all kinds of shapes with my knees and just retraining how to use my body again. And your body was able to sort of rewire itself based on all that physical therapy? Yes, believe it or not. I learned how to walk again. And eventually, (laughs) I learned to run. (laughs) I remember that image. I never forgot that image, all those thousands of people running past Sloan with with smiles so big and bright and full, abled bodies. And I said, I want to do that. I want to do that so bad. And that was the carrot. That was the impetus for me to get up every day and spend five hours a day writing the alphabet with my feet. Yeah, it's interesting. It's good when you're forward thinking like that and you have a goal and, and something to strive for. It tends to help you overcome just about anything right? How do you stay focused on a goal like that when obviously it must have been hard, it must have been painful, it must have been tiring and seemed endless at times? How do you stay focused? How do you stay engaged? I had faith. I never, ever let my faith go. I knew that I survived for a reason. If God let me continue to live, there was a reason that I had survived and I had to do this. I had to show others that it could be done. And I saw it as an opportunity to take back my life and to inspire others in the interim. So what was the transition for you? Because you changed your whole life at that point too, right? I mean, you say that this was a wake-up call for you in your 20s where you just, because of this whole thing, you just changed direction with your life, right? I did. I completely changed everything. Well, it took a few years. I didn't run the marathon the next year. It actually took five years. I was very weak and it 
was a long five-year journey, but I continued to plug away at what I knew. I had finished a degree in, in finance, and I worked in the field of finance for many years. But after I ran a few marathons, after that first initial marathon, I felt wonderful, and I saw it as an opportunity to keep doing it. And I raised funds, and I raised awareness, and I ran past Sloan with my survivor's shirt, crying and inspiring other people, showing them that if I could do it, damn it, they could do it too. But over the course of the next uh, five years, I realized that I'm not exactly where I should be. And I decided to go back to school and uh, study anatomy. And I actually wanted to be a physical therapist and do the same thing that was done to me, help others take their first steps and help others overcome challenges. And that's kind of what my goal was then, to help others the way someone has helped me. That sounds very rewarding to be able to help people like that. It is so much more rewarding than plugging numbers into a computer. <laughs> <laughs> so what I find with the really good massage therapists, it's more than just the physical touch. There's some level of healing empathy in the really good physical therapists and massage therapists where they're almost connecting to you or working within you as opposed to from the outside in. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? makes perfect sense, and I feel exactly the same way. When I'm working on someone, it's usually a runner. 99.9% .9 of my clients are runners. I'm coming at it from a different perspective than just trying to make them feel good. I'm trying to heal that part of their body that they have overused and trying to get rid of those injuries that are much deeper than, than what they are feeling. Perhaps they're feeling some pain in one area, but it's really somewhere else that it's emanating from, and I'm trying to get into that area. Yeah, and you sort of work with them, right, as opposed to work on them. Exactly. I'm 100% working with them, and sometimes it's very painful, but to feel good <laughs> in your body is worth it. So you pretty rapidly, when you started walking then started running, you pretty rapidly went from 5K to 10K to marathon to ultra marathon to all kinds of crazy stuff. Well, not crazy, just, you know, a lot, right? It was pretty much a passion that was born when I crossed my first finish line. It was just not something I did. It became someone I was. And when I came into the office, I was no longer cancer girl. I was runner girl. Everyone was asking me, what race did you run this week? And people who never ran before were inspired to run their first 5K because, well, if that cancer girl can do it, surely I could do it. <laughs> yeah. And I had to keep that persona up. And I also enjoyed keeping it up. I enjoyed pushing my body to see how much more can I do. Well, if I can run one marathon this year, perhaps next year I can run two. Perhaps next year I can run three. And then it was... How many marathons can I run in one month? My record is six. Six, yeah, but that's a lot. But I enjoyed, always enjoyed challenging myself in a safe way and seeing what my body could physically do if I put in enough training and enough focus and do it correctly without injuring myself. Yeah, so have you found that edge at all in this process? So typically what happens when you ramp up aggressively like that, like you said, when you go to, from one to two to four to six, you find something that you hit some edge somewhere in your body that says, nope, something's wrong there. And it's either something mechanical or it's just something in your form or your approach or your recovery. Did you hit a bunch of those sort of shelves as you were ramping up your distance? Absolutely. I've hit a bunch of different places in my running career that have said, nope, this is the most you can do. And I've been injured many times. And then I had to fight my way back from injury and figured out what I did wrong. So the next time 
I can learn. I feel I've learned from all my DNFs and all my injuries much more than from finishing, yeah, whether it's exactly. my nutrition or my form or tweaking different things that didn't quite work. It was a good way for me to learn from them. They were stepping stones so I can reach to the next level. Yeah, exactly. And that's the point is uh, you don't look at these things as failures per se. You look at them as uh, it's very trite, sounds trite as learning experiences, but you have to do that or else you're going to hit the same wall again next time. Yes, 100% learning experiences. And I have a, a one race that has taught me over and over and over again, but I did finally come back for the fourth time and I conquered it. And now I feel victorious. And what was that race? It's called the Beast of Burden. It's a hundred miler in Buffalo, New York in August. Hmm. It's the hottest time of the year. And obviously the distance itself is challenging enough, but the fact that it's the hardest because it's so hot and you're fighting the elements, that makes it a lot more challenging. Yeah. Yeah. If you're not a heat runner, sure. Yeah. It takes more off of your uh, effort level. When the heat's on, that's what I find. It's almost like a 15 to 20% drag on your performance. Yes, but at the same time, I had many friends who were running bad water, which is a lot more challenging and longer and hotter. And I figured if they can do it, I can do it. So I became focused. And for the next four years, my carrot was this one race that kept eluding me. And I got to 73 miles and I got to 87 miles, but I couldn't quite get to the finish line, but I kept at it. Some people said, oh, just pick another 100. And I said, no, a part of me was left on that course, an opportunity to keep learning and keep figuring out what I did wrong and keep tweaking. And I knew that if I just went out one more time, I would just be able to do it. And I did. That's great. You overcame. And that makes the finish that much sweeter, right? Yes. The harder the race, the sweeter that medal is or that buckle is in that case. So the interesting learning experience in doing this sort of thing, for most people who's, who step up to a marathon or step up to to some sort of races, it teaches them that what they thought were their limits aren't really their limits, and it sort of puts them into a, this confused state where everything that they had assumed before may or may not be true. you find that happening? 100% agreed. I think we have to continually start push our self-perceived limits because we just do not know how strong we are. We have no idea what we're capable of until we are pushed. And when you're doing a, a marathon and you hit that wall, that proverbial wall, it's just your mind saying, okay, I'm tired. But the strongest muscle you have, of course, is your brain. And your mind is just trying to protect you, to coddle you, to say, okay, stop. But if you just keep pushing and you keep going forward, on the other side of that wall, you have serious depths of strength you never knew you had because you've never taxed those elements before. Right. That's absolutely it. And then when you come out of that, it spills over into the rest of your life where you go, well, if I can do that thing, what else have I been assuming that I couldn't do that I can do now, right? hundred percent. The marathon is, is my favorite distance because it's such a great metaphor for life. You get out of it exactly what you put into it. Yep. And I find it very transformational for people when they do that and they discover it. That's why I hate when people just do sort of a one-and-done program. I'd rather see people keep learning from it and moving forward. Agreed. I actually just ran a marathon this past weekend that was somehow managed to come back from not running fast for many years. The last six years, I've been chasing many, many marathons, multiple marathons, but really they were training runs for my 100 milers, which I used the marathons as part of my base of training. But I decided this year for the first time in forever to physically put in the work necessary 
So I scaled back considerably. I went from running 35 marathons a year to running three. And by scaling back and putting all that focus into training, which really works, (laughs) I was able to come back strong and set a PR. Yep, yep. Yeah, that's something that I I try to impress on people myself is that uh, you really don't know what you're capable of in a marathon until you get a decent training plan. And it's the same thing you were talking about before about what you think you're capable of. You'll find that you're capable of a lot more speed and tempo and volume than you thought you were. When I tell people that anybody could qualify for Boston if they're willing to put in the work, they usually scoff at me, right? But it's it's just a question of your training, right? So mm-hmm. how, Absolutely. How, much, how much time were you able to take off your uh, marathon by focusing like that? Well, after 161 marathons, I was able to take off nine minutes. But I wasn't trying the whole 161 times. I was just doing them for training runs and having fun and just using them as weekend vacations. But uh, like I said, I was able to take off nine minutes this past Saturday, and it was the best feeling I have felt in forever. Yeah, you feel a lot of inner strength doing that. Much more than I thought I had. I really thought I couldn't go any faster. That's why I decided to go longer because I couldn't challenge myself with the speed anymore. I thought I'd reached my plateau, so I wanted to challenge myself in a new way. That's why I went for the yeah. longer distances. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So did you end up doing a, a lot of speed work to bring your time down like that, Julia? I did. I did a great deal of speed work. I spent one day where I'd focus and I would do mile repeats. And I'd start with your basic three miles. And eventually I worked my way up to 10 miles. And the mile repeats, I think, and, of course, doing a lot less marathons, a lot less volume, for my body wasn't so tired and it was able to pull out those mile repeats. I think that's what did it. Yeah, and you're doing those at probably, what, target marathon pace minus 30 seconds, something like that? Minus a minute. (laughs) Yeah, so that's real speed work, yeah. So it wasn't tempo, it was speed. Yeah, that's your classic 1600. That's old school. Yeah. I love it. And it's boring, and it's really boring by yourself doing four loops around the track, but it works. But it's very empowering as well. I used to hate going there, but when you're done, when you walk away from five hard 1600s, there's no better feeling in the world, right? There's no more fulfilling feeling in the world than getting those done, right? Absolutely. Knowing that you did it, you didn't shortchange yourself. You didn't cut it short because you didn't feel good. You focused, and you just mentally told yourself, I can and I will. And I have a mantra that I've used to get me through those dark spots. And for me, that's I'm stronger than cancer and faster than fear. And no matter how hard it got, I tapped into my mantra and I did it. And the proof is in the pudding because wouldn't you know it? (laughs) My 184th marathon was my fifth fastest marathon ever. That's great. Yeah. And the rule I used to make for myself is if you feel like stopping after you do a couple of these, you can go ahead and stop. But you're going down there, no matter how crappy you feel, you're going down to the track and you're doing and you're starting the workout. And if you get in the middle of the workout and still want to bail, then go ahead. And that never happens, right? Or rarely happens. No, I actually had to force myself several times to stop because I felt so good. The longer I was out there, the stronger I felt, the more I wanted to do. <laughs> so now you're working on the, the continents? You're running every, every yes. continent? Yes, my husband and I are en route to Australia in September to run the Sydney Marathon, which will be our fourth continent. That's a beautiful marathon because it runs over the um, Victoria Bridge right over the harbor. I cannot wait. Yeah, it's pretty there. Now that I found my fast twitch muscles again, now my goal is to sub four there. 
Oh, yeah, piece of cake. Yeah, it's good stuff. That's a beautiful place. Have you ever thought about doing the seven marathons on seven continents in seven days thing that everybody's doing now? That's kind of not how I like to travel. I'm going to be in Australia for three weeks. When I go to a new city, I want to breathe it in. I want to see the culture. I want to taste the food. I want to act like I'm in Rome when I'm in Rome. I don't want to just breathe through it and fly to the next destination. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I've done that thing where you parachute in, run the race and parachute out, and it's no fun. You really want to spend some time in the city. So what do you think the I want to uh, completely hardest... absorb every place I go to and feel like I'm really living. So what do you think the hardest thing you've done so far is? As I mentioned, Beast of Burden, the 100-miler in Buffalo. Oh. Yeah, that's the hardest race, but the hardest thing was probably learn how to walk again, right? Yes. Overcoming my brain tumor and relearning how to use my body again was definitely the most challenging thing so far. What are your big goals for the next five, ten years? Well, I would like to obviously qualify for Boston, and I can see that happening now. I have proof to myself this past weekend that I can do it. I just have to do it in two years. But <laughs> I would like to finish the seven continents, of course. And most importantly, I kind of want to go set a new PR in the 100-miler distance and sub-24, which I know is attainable for me. Yeah, that's hard. That, Given the right conditions. Hard thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's special, running those long races. That's special. And you even got married on the marathon course, or you got proposed to on the marathon course, right? Both, actually. Both. You are correct. I met my husband on a marathon course. It was a trail marathon in Wisconsin, and we decided to run races all over the country together. And four years later, he proposed to me at a marathon course in Louisiana. And then three years later, we got married on a marathon course in Maui Oceanfront. So uh, that's great that you found a soulmate that goes out and runs with you, goes and does your adventures with you. That must make it easier. Yes, it makes it a lot easier for planning purposes, but also it's a lot sweeter when we can both enjoy the same adventure and the same challenges. Yeah. So as I'm moving you towards the exit here, what would you like to leave people with? Never give up on yourself. Never give up hope. You can do so much more than you think you can. You have within you so much more potential. Your self-perceived limitations are completely self-perceived. You can do more than you think you can. So do you get out and do any speaking or uh, that sort of thing with your message? No, I'm deathly shy. <laughs> You're deathly shy? Well, you can write a book. Yes. Right now I'm living my life and I'm, I'm taking notes and every adventure is a new chapter. And one day, when I'm tired of um, running around like all over the countries and all over the world, then I'll sit down and put my life to pen. Good for you. I'm sure it'll be a fascinating read. So uh, that's thank good you. to have that in your future. Well, thank you very much I for talking that. with me today, Julia. Do you have any um, you. links that you want to share with folks where they can find you? Marathon Massage. Marathon Massage. All right. I'll put that in the uh, show notes as well. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you very much. It's great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. I appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. All right, my friends, five at five. I feel like I'm reporting back to the class here. I'm calling this post Sun Salutations on the Summer Solstice. Nice alliteration there, right? So my training cycle for Boston this year took a lot out of me. Not so much physically. Training is always hard physically. 
but mentally I felt the weight of it, the constant tension of having to screw up enough energy and courage and enthusiasm to hit that next workout with enough fervor to get the benefit. It became a form of stress, always there, the monkey on my shoulder, and I did not enjoy it. I was relieved to have it done with. It was a bit anticlimactic not to get the weather we wanted for the race. I couldn't really use that fitness that I worked through that stress for. In essence, there was no psychological release. Built up stress, no release. And one of the powerful lessons about marathon training is delayed gratification. You make the sacrifices, you compartmentalize the stress of the training in honor of the greater goal, the race. And when the race doesn't come off, it somehow invalidates the worthiness of that delayed gratification. Now, I know I have a history of falling off the race wagon when the marathon's over, and I'm sensitive to the fact that if I don't find some new project to interest me, I'll fall into poor habits. Usually, I just switch to another type of activity for the summer season, like a triathlon, trail racing, mountain biking, and I didn't have that plan this year. Nothing really grabbed me. And this spring, I kept training, but I was sick of the long hour-and-a-half runs and the workouts that the coach has given me. It was less intense than training for a race, but it still took too much thought, too much time. I just needed a vacation. Then I ran that 50K to see if that would clear some of the ennui, and it helped for a couple days, but I was still sliding down the slippery slope into weight gain and mediocrity, and I came up with an idea. I would just simplify my routine to running five miles a day. This shouldn't be a problem. I had the fitness and volume of my last training cycle. Five miles is nothing. Since I always liked the simple clarity of getting up early, I decided to get up at 5 a.m. and do this run first thing before the day got away. And since I was not traveling, I could take these morning runs out into the trails right behind my house. The 5 at 5 project was born. It was the end of May, so I called it a 30-day project. I like the arc of a 30-day project. I would run 5 miles at 5 a.m. every day in June. And in addition, I've got this old dog who likes to run in the woods with me, and I would take him for the first two-mile loop. The whole package would be 5 miles at 5 a.m. for every day in June, loosely 30 days, although in the end it will be about 33 or more. In the woods... With the first two miles with the dog, no pace requirements, no heart rate tracking, no stretching, no cross training, nothing else, no stress, less than an hour every day. But just to keep myself interested, I'd take a photo and write a quick blog. Good plan, right? Simple, straightforward, still kind of interesting. So what did I learn from this? What worked and what didn't? Now, the question I usually get asked when I tell people about this project is, was it hard? And the answer isn't really a straightforward yes or no. So was it hard for me to get up at 5 a.m.? Not really. I'm used to getting up in the morning anyhow. And with June being the longest days of the year, the sun is up at 5, and this makes it easy to get up. For the first few days, I set the alarm for 5, and then I realized quickly that I didn't need the alarm. I woke up naturally with the sun somewhere between 4.30 and 5.30. Was it hard to run 5 miles in the morning every day? Again, not really. 
Think of where I was coming from. I just rolled off a marathon training program with 10 to 12 mile step up runs and 20 mile log runs. Mentally and physically, five miles a day is nothing for me right now. But one question I had was, would the daily cadence be too much on my old body? Would I develop overtraining tendonitis in my knees, hips, Achilles, etc.? Would the daily cadence break me down? And as it turns out, no. (laughs) The volume didn't give me any more aches and pains than normal. Since I wasn't worried about pace, and I was in the trails, if I just felt tired, I'd just run slower. It was never hard, per se. I mean, I did have days where I would be weary, or my legs would be tired for some reason, but by the time I hit that fourth and fifth mile, I'd be flying and full of energy. My body just figured it out. Now, 30-day projects, we've talked about this before. Whether they be diets or any other habit, have a natural adaptation arc, a curve to them. And the first week or so, it's a little hard to get motivated, but the project is new and your enthusiasm trumps any adversity. Then there's a patch somewhere in the second week where it's still hard and you've lost the initial enthusiasm. And this is the low point of any 30-day habit adaptation. At some point after that, your adaptation kicks in and it becomes effortless. It's just another habit. And I found this to be true as well. At first, it was interesting to see the morning and feel my body in the morning. And then for a few days, it became like a chore where I felt like I had this thing I had to do. Then I adapted and it just became part of my rhythm. How did the dog do? He did fine. I started every run with him. We did the same 2.2 mile loop in 20 minutes or so. And towards the end, he started forgetting it was a run with a destination. And he just float off to smell something and fall way behind. During this last week, I had to leash him to get him into the trail and to get him out of the trail so he wouldn't get lost in the yard on the way to the trail like some five-year-old chasing butterflies. But he seemed to hold up well physically, and I gave him the weekends off. For myself, I decided to let the weekends be less rigorous. I still get out for runs on both days, but if I wanted to sleep in a little on Saturday, I would. And if I wanted to join a friend for a 10-miler on Sunday, I would. My shortest run ended up being a hash run with my club that was about four and a half miles. And my longest was a 15-plus mile trail run with one of my running buddies. And what was the effect of this project on my fitness? Well, I don't know what my racing fitness is right now, but just by feel, my guess is that I probably maintained my aerobic fitness, meaning my ability to go long. I think my speed was not helped by all this repetitive slow running. A fast 5K would probably be a challenge for me right now. Since I didn't do any yoga or core or any other kind of cross-training, my core does feel weak. One delightful thing is that I hardly gained any weight at all this month, even with not watching my diet. The calorie burn seemed to be very beneficial and very positive, especially in the morning like that. So what was the big epiphany? What really surprised me is how mentally beneficial this process was. Once I got through the adaptation phase, it became like moving meditation. I never took the headphones with me, and I was all alone with my thoughts. 
It wasn't just that I was being put into a relaxed state, like breathing meditation. I would get into that state and think through the challenges and problems and stressors of that day. I didn't simply suppress the stressors. I transitioned through them, if that makes any sense. It was a very powerful and effective way to start the day. I honestly forgot I was running most of the time. It was transcendent. I had one day this week where I missed a turn in the trail because I was lost in thought. I ended up running six miles. And the second big epiphany, and I don't know if it was because I did this project during the summer solstice, but I became very aware and connected to the natural cycles of the earth. I began to feel the sunrise and the weather in a much more connected way. Not like it was happening, but like I was part of it. Like I was somehow homeostatically connected to the cycles of the natural world. I imagine this is how the pastoral farmers of 5,000 years ago felt, or their hunter-gatherer predecessors. This awakening to natural cycles surprised and delighted me. And it makes me wonder if I shouldn't try this project again in December during the winter solstice to see if uh, see how the shortest day of the year feels. That's my report on the 5 at 5 project. If you want to see pictures and the daily blog posts from these morning adventures during June, you can find them on the website at runrunlive.com. And if you're stressed out with training and you're looking for some peace of mind, some peace in your running, try a version of this, the 30-day program, and see see what happens to you. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, you have been proposed to, well, have you? Have you been proposed to and married during this marathon of episode 4-368 of the Run Run Live podcast? Maybe you have. Things are cooking. I'm busy. I'm working on a bunch of cool stuff. One of the startups I'm working with in Boston is this smart garment company that I told you about last time. They are going into a testing phase before they launch and are looking for runners. So if you're local and you want to try some new tech and you're training for a fall race, let me know and I can introduce you. Even if you're not local and you want to learn more, I can introduce you for future stuff as they roll it out. Cool stuff. Yeah, I don't know what I'm doing for a fall target race. I'm leaning towards a main race in October or November, and maybe I'll do the MDI, the Mount Desert Island race, because I know Gary Allen, the race director. We've interviewed him at least twice. And uh, I've always wanted to run that race. And I need a main race. It's very scenic. I'm toying with doing a version of my own marathon BQ plan to see if I can get some speed back. I'd have to modify it to have less volume and more cross-training and more recovery days. I'd never survive it as written at my age. So I'm not sure how Buddy is going to react now that we're finished this five at five program, he may revolt. He may be waking me up at five in the morning and demanding to hit the trails. But I guess there are worse things, right? And next week, next week, I've got a couple of interviews lined up. I've got an Irish author whose book I'm reading, sort of a literary mashup of Murakami and Born to Run. Uh, Editorial note here, when I throw out authors or movies or other factoids like that, I usually provide a link 
to an explanation of just what the fine day I'm talking about in the show notes and the accompanying uh, blog post on my site. So there you go. Mirror Army Born to Run links. I'm also talking with Tim, the anxiety guy. So that should be cool. I like him. We'll get one of those up for the next show, or maybe I'll pull in R&R for uh, talking about the smart garment. You know, we'll get to talk about robo-running. I did curate two old episodes up onto the members feed, so consider being a member. It keeps the lights on over here at Run Run Live at the headquarters, and it's fun for me to go back and listen to myself when I was, you know, see what I was doing five or six years ago. And by the way, this episode is more than likely the 10-year anniversary of Run Run Live as a podcast. How about that? Here we are. Who would have thought it was possible? Over a million downloads later. So don't be a stranger. Reach out and say hi. I'm entirely approachable, but not so terribly interesting in person. It's funny how time moves around us and floats us and sometimes sinks us, maybe. Makes you think about what you're doing today and how it will change the flow of time for your tomorrows. One of my more philosophical answers that frustrates my people that I work with is that I don't know what the outcome will be. But I can tell you that I'm doing the things today that will put me in a position to influence those outcomes. And that's the message for you. You can't necessarily get off your raft that is being pushed along in the river of time. You can't change the past. You can't change the future. You can only choose what to do with your personal, your great personal fire, your gift today. And that can be enough to not only change your life, but also change the lives of others. So it's not set. You can do whatever you want. You just have to decide to do it. And today I choose to talk to you, my friends, about running and thinking and experimenting with the fabric of the universe in my small dusty corner of it. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. How about a little tea? Let's make a little tea. Let's drink a little tea. (coughs) Good stuff. Long run paces for marathon training. I'm going to hit this topic again because I keep getting asked this question and it seems there there are many. Oh, I don't even know what that word is. I think it's there may be. There may be. There we go. I'm going to hit this topic again 